This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Back by popular demand this week, we have Peter Suderman. Peter's features editor at Reason Magazine, and he's also the author of the popular cocktail substack newsletter, Cocktails with Suderman. We had Peter here back in late April to talk about cocktails for spring, going into summer, what to do as the weather was warming up, and uh, now the weather is cooling down. It is uh, just barely into fall, and we wanted to get Peter back here to talk about how you should ready your drinking for the change in the weather. So first of all, Peter, thank you so much for coming back. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's interesting because back in April, when we talked about what you were drinking as you know, as it was spring, you were talking about you've been drinking a lot of Negronis in March, sort of coming out of winter as the weather was warming up. And now it's September and it is once again Negroni season. So Negroni, Negroni season comes twice a year. It's sort of for these weather transitions in both directions. So I think of Negroni season, yes, it does, I think, come twice a year, except that in the in the spring, I tend to drink sort of gin Negronis and, um, uh, you know, and, and drinks based in gin. And, the, and I think of the spring season as being sort of gin season. And so we start with martinis, and then we move into Negronis, and then we move into gin sours of, of various sorts. And then in the fall, I like Mezcal Negronis, and I like whiskey-based Negronis, which is a Boulevardier. Um, and you, there's a bunch of variations that you can make uh, using those. And so the newsletter that is uh, that I'm working on, uh, you know, as we uh, as we talk here, is going to be about uh, a pair of mezcal negronis. It's actually a follow up to a, a newsletter that was also about uh, two different mezcal negronis. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can vary this, and and especially, you know, I wanted to do that this year just because we introduced the margarita and mezcal based drinks in the summer, and so this is sort of taking mezcal into into the fall and using its sort of smoky, earthy notes to uh, in in a way that I think sort of reflects, you know, colder weather. One, one thing you, you say in the newsletter that's interesting, and first of all, is, is how, how easily you can vary Negronis. You can sort of change any of the ingredients in them. You talk about that, in general, Mezcal works in drinks where you can have gin, uh, and so that makes the Mezcal Negroni especially appealing. I like the, the malleability of the Negroni because I don't really care for Campari. I think Campari is sort of very one note, very bitter. Um, and so I don't, really especially like a standard Negroni, but I like a lot of variants of Negronis. You can replace the the Campari with a Maro Nonino or with something else that has a, a little bit more complex flavor and is a little bit less assertively bitter. And then you get a nicely balanced drink that I really like. And that's sort of, I think, one of the things that's great about Negroni season is that if you don't like a particular kind of Negroni, there's always something different you can do that matches to your taste. That's totally right. The Negroni allows you just a huge amount of variability in terms of um, experimenting and playing with the format and adapting it. And so, as you said, it's, uh, it's that allows you to do to create ver- versions that you might like better if you say don't like Campari. But it also allows you to create versions that are just sort of add complexity and sort of keep things different without uh, without having to do with a huge amount of work. So an a Negroni is just three basic ingredients, often in equal parts, right? It's gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. And if you think of the Negroni as a template rather than as a specific drink, each one of those then becomes a slot that you can just put stuff into. And so in the gin slot, you can easily just move in mezcal, or you can move in whiskey, or you can move in rum. And rum Negronis are great if you've ever had huh. a, a dark rum Negroni, especially uh, made with like a somewhat overproof, funky Jamaican rum. Just delicious. 
And then in the sweet vermouth slot, there are a huge number of sort of, that's just a sweetener slot, right? And so what that is doing is it's almost like the sugar in an old fashioned. It's bringing some sweet to the drink and some spice notes as well, because uh, sweet vermouth is an aromatized fortified wine. So it's a little higher proof you know, than, than typical wine. And it's got some spice notes in it. And then you have the Campari, but that's just a slot for bitter, right? And so in a lot of ways, this drink functions like an old fashioned. It is a three piece band, a three part drink that is made up of sweet, bitter and strong. And then you just take elements and swap them in and out. And one of the great things about the Negroni is it's not just that, you know, you have this sort of basic format. It's that all of those elements are off the shelf pours, right? This is, you don't have to make anything. There's no syrups. There's no juices. There's no, there's no prep time except going to the liquor store and buying bottles. And if you have bottles that fit into those categories in your house already, then you can just make these things in, in you know, 30 seconds without having to uh, think, oh, my goodness, I've got cocktail. I'm going to have cocktails tonight. I've got to start whipping up syrups and, you know, do my uh, juicing around and like, no, no, there's none of that. It's just you need three ingredients that are already in a bottle, you know, and so that makes them, you know, very adaptable without a whole lot of forethought. It's also kind of nice as a beginner cocktail because at least classically, it's three equal parts. So it's really easy to remember right. how to make a Negroni. It's just the same amount of each thing. And obviously there are variations where you don't do exactly that, but it works well when you do that. And it's the, my husband is always asking me, you know, what are the proportions when I make a Manhattan, you know, every, every time, but it's, <laughs> right. it's very, he doesn't need to ask for proportions on a Negroni because it's the, it's the same across all three. So let, let's talk about how to do that variation. So suppose that you are, you're, you're making a Mezcal Negroni. How does the choice of Mezcal as the sort of strong spirit component, how does that drive what you're going to use as a sweet element and what you're going to use as a bitter element? Because I, I assume I'm, I, you could make it just with Campari and sweet vermouth, which is the standard drink, but I assume that's, that's not what yes. you're going to suggest. Uh, so I, I, I did write up just the, the standard drink in a newsletter, but then from there, you can take those additional two slots and you can vary them. And so in the sweet vermouth slot, well, you might think of, right, just, oh, let's, there's a bunch of different types of sweet vermouth and they all have different flavor profiles. You've got something that's very uh, sort of uh, heavy bodied and, and sort of quite syrupy and like a, has a big vanilla bomb flavor, which is Carpano Antica uh, formula vermouth, which is a, a, a popular one. You've got something, uh, Cokey di Torino makes a, a a very berry forward, uh, medium bodied vermouth. I actually just like Dolan Rouge, which is a very common, uh, relatively affordable bottle in a Mezcal Negroni. The lightness of Dolan Rouge goes really well with the lightness of Mezcal. Yeah. And that's that's about half the price of Carpano Antica formula. I think it's you, you can get it for about $16 a bottle. Uh, Carpano Antica has actually gone up to like more like $40 a bottle, at least in D.C. It's wow. it's gotten somewhat expensive. There has been some pandemic inflation on, on some of these things. Yes. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> but then what I really like uh, in the bitter slot is Chinar. And that's C-Y-N-A-R. A lot of people think it's Sinar. No, it's actually pronounced Chinar. And Chinar has a picture of an artichoke on the front of the bottle. And so a lot of people think this is artichoke liqueur. That's not wrong, but it's not exactly a complete picture of what it is. It doesn't really taste like an artichoke. Like if someone gave you a, a blind taste test of it, you wouldn't be like, oh, that tastes like artichokes. There are dozens of flavors in Chinar. It is a dark... Amaro, um, sort of. So, if you think of uh, if you think of Campari and Aperol, have this kind of reddish character to them. Um, they're you know the Italian bitters as well. Um, Chinar is it is a 
maybe it just a little bit more syrupy. I actually find it a little more mild, but also a little more complex, and it just pairs incredibly well with mezcal. And so all of the variations that I either have written up or, or will be writing up use Chinar along with the mezcal in some way or another. And so one of the things you can do, though, uh, is that you can take Chinar and you can actually use it in the sweet vermouth slot. And so you could have huh. a mezcal Chinar Campari version of this. And so that's not extremely bitter? It, it comes out uh, much sweeter than you would think because both Campari and Chinar have some sweet element to them. They are not just straightforwardly bitter elements. They are bittersweet. And so there is sugar in them. If you've ever, you can make your own Amaro. It's a fun project. Uh, it's worth doing if you're just, if you're interested in the, in the stuff to learn how it works. Can we just define exactly what an Amaro is? I mean, yeah. I think people like know like Campari is an Amaro, but what is what makes a liqueur an Amaro? An Amaro is a bitter liqueur that typically, but not always, comes from Italy. Uh, many of, but like sort of this style of uh, uh, of liqueur originates in Italy, but now, I mean, there's a, a an Amaro producer in Washington, D.C. There are also um, uh, producers of these things uh, spread across Europe. But it is, there are liqueurs, sometimes they're wine-based, sometimes they're brandy-based. Often, though, they are just made, they, they start with a, a neutral spirit. Uh, I mean, if you're making them at home, you typically start with Everclear. And so it's like the best way to think about this or to understand this, again, is to have actually made this stuff yourself at home. And the way you do this is you buy a bittering agent. Uh, it's some sort of bitter root. And you can get these at health food stores. But you can also just get these things on Amazon. And so like gentian or something like that. Um, and you're getting one of these bitter roots uh, and you drop them in Everclear along with a bunch of flavoring agents. And that can be spices of, of any kind. They can be orange peels. You can uh, you can put in coffee. You can put in uh, star anise. You can put in you know almost anything that is in your spice rack can go in that bottle. And then you let it sit there for six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. Depends on what you're trying to make, but for a long time, at least a month. Uh, and at the end, you've got extremely powerfully flavored and bitter Everclear. Now, you don't want to drink that because Everclear, <laughs> first of all, the flavor is going to be crazy. Second of all, Everclear is just insanely overproof, uh, right? It's just sort of pure grain spirit. But then what you do is you mix that down with water and some sort of sweetener. And so you take that down, typically, sort of if you're making it at home, you're aiming for something in the range of about 30% alcohol by volume. So it's not going to be as high proof as whiskey, but it's going to be uh, higher proof than wine. There are some Amaros that are uh, quite low proof. Uh, uh, Chinar, for example, is about 16.5 ABV. So you're mixing that down with water and sweetener. And that sweetener can be maple syrup or sugar or honey or any of these things. And then what you have is a lower proof bitter, spiced, sweet liqueur. And that's that's what happens if you make it at home, but it's also what happens when the pros make it, you know, in, in, uh, on an industrial scale. It's just that they're using a, re a recipe that in many cases has been refined for, you know, 100 plus years. Can I ask before listeners go and do this themselves and try to make their own tomorrow, there are some things like, you know, I want to infuse vodka with grapefruit or something. And I, you know, I cut up a grapefruit, leave it in the vodka for some number of days, and then I get delightful grapefruit vodka. There are other things like when people make their own wine at home where usually it sucks and like they like inflict it upon their guests 
uh, at this hobby thing that they are doing. And, you know, most people are just going to be bad at it and produce a bad product. Where in that scale does make your own Amaro work? Or is a, someone who's not super skilled at this likely to be able to get good results with that? Or are they going to be sort of grossed out by the thing that they have after after several weeks of infusion? That's a good question. I, I, I think the way to, to think about this is <laughs> there are recipes that you can follow that are designed to produce homemade Amaro that are like, oh, this will be good. Brad Thomas Parsons, who is uh, uh, the author of uh, a book on bitters and a book on Amaro and sort of a, an expert in, on this sort of thing, has some recipes. There are also just recipes and, uh, you know, just online that you can find uh, from other people who have done this. But even if you are not following a recipe, I think you are going to get something that is maybe it's not going to win any awards. Maybe you're not going to say, oh, man, I've got to make this every fall. But you're going to get something that is pretty interesting at least if you can get the sweetener part, the, the sweetening uh, and, and mixing down with water right. That is actually the, much harder than getting the flavor combination right. When I have done this, the hardest part is getting the, the correct amount of sweetener in there and judging that. But if you can get the sweetener aspect of it right, you're going to get something, at least if you like complex bitter liqueurs, that is just like, oh, these like what that out what the the time in the in the alcohol does is it marries all those ingredients together and then grounds them in bitter right mm -hmm. and they sort of it's they're like people who move into a group house together and they don't know each other at first <laughs> and eventually they come out and they've got these like you know sometimes they're they're like frenemies right rather than just friends but they've got this interesting set of relationships that develops over time and like if you've ever known a bunch of people who move into a group house together and didn't know each other after six months, you come in and you're like, well, that was interesting, right? At, at worst, you think, right, you're like, there's this whole drama going on. And that's the same thing that's going to happen if you make your own tomorrow. The very worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to produce an interesting drama and you're going to learn the process by which tomorrow is made. And you will come out with, may again, maybe not thinking, man, this stuff is just going to sell thousands of bottles and I got to publish this recipe. But you are going to think, I now understand how something like, Chinar or Averna or Amaro Tiaro is made. And that helps me understand what the how to use those bitter liqueurs in cocktails. So basically, whatever you do, it's going to turn out like some season of the real world. Like, might be New Orleans, <laughs> might be San Francisco, you don't know. But uh, you hope it's not the Washington, D.C. season. <laughs> Before I, I, I knocked you off the, the course about Chinar, assuming that most people are not going to make their own Amaro at home, they're going to buy something off the shelf like Chinar. Yes. Uh, so these options for the Mezcal Negroni, you can do a heavier sweet vermouth like Carpano Antica Formula plus Chinar plus Mezcal, or you could do Mezcal Campari and Chinar, which I, I assume would be somewhat more bitter, even though it's not extremely bitter. Yes. So you can do Mezcal, Campari, and Chinar, but to that trio, you want to add one more ingredient. It looks like a bottle of bitters. It's technically a shrub. It is Bitterman's Hellfire sh uh, Shrub. It is a sort of hot pepper kind of like bitters add-on, and it gives this whole thing a little bit of heat. And so a shrub, for people who don't know, that, that contains both sugar and vinegar, right? Yeah, but you add that little bit of heat. And if you've ever had like a a spicy Paloma or a spicy margarita, right, where somebody has added in, you know, red pepper flakes into the mix somehow or another, or even just put like a, a, a red pepper salt on the rim, right? You know how well those agave spirits, uh, because mezcal, like tequila, is a, a spirit that is derived from uh, the agave plant. You know how well those things combine. 
And that's true even in stirred bitter drinks as well. And you can, so you just drop a, it's like literally like four drops mm -hmm. of uh, habanero shrub into the mix. And what you have is this super complex, super, just the incredibly interesting drink with heat and bitter and- And smoke and sweetness. Yes, and you get that smoke from, from Mezcal. I mean, something like Chinar is gonna have dozens and dozens of different flavoring ingredients uh, in the recipe. And they don't tell you all of the things that are in it, right? So you're just getting this incredibly layered and rich flavor profile from four ingredients, right? And, and it's really just three bottles plus the shrub bitters thing. And this is, I think, the reason that the Negroni is such a great drink to make and modify at home is you can produce drinks that are incredibly complicated, that are just rich and interesting, but all you have to do is have three or four bottles on hand. They're just the simplest things to mix up. And yet you get results that are consistently like, wow, I, I've never imagined this symphony of flavors before. I want to turn and talk about sour drinks, because even though the weather's getting cooler, there's still some time for the appropriateness of sour drinks. And actually, before we're, we're going to talk about uh, whiskey sours. But the, the first thing I want to ask about, actually, is something that I was making this summer that I know you, you were making sometimes this summer. Uh, and it's on the theme of that you can bring in mezcal where gin would normally be. And that's the last word. Now, the last word, like the Negroni, is, is also a conveniently equal parts cocktail. It's four different ingredients. You do equal parts traditionally of gin, lime juice, green chartreuse, and uh, maraschino, which is a cherry liqueur. And so I know you, when, when you make it with gin, you actually don't do equal parts, but you, you have a variant where you put mezcal in for the gin, and then you do do equal parts of all four of those, is again, this, com this nice combination of, of sour and sweet uh, and, the, and the smoke from the, the mezcal that produces a, a really nice, complex combination. And also this this set of herbal flavors that comes from the chartreuse. And so chartreuse is a sort of herbal liqueur that's actually uh, surprisingly high proof. If you've tasted it, um, it's sort of you think, oh, this is going to be lower proof, uh, a lot like some, uh, you know, like a bottle of bitter liqueur or something. It's actually 55% uh, uh, ABV, so higher proof than, mm -hmm. you know, even a lot of whiskeys or, or, or rums or gins that you might have. But the mezcal variation of this, again, is so simple. All you're doing is taking out the gin and just putting the mezcal in. But then what you get is you get that sort of earthy, smoky character that is playing against the herbal character of the chartreuse. And it's just so pleasant. And it's also, it works very well in the fall. It's a good fall sour uh, because you're sort of, you're getting again, this sort of like, oh, this is the dying ember of a fire, right? Like this sort <laughs> of smells like burnt leaves. There's like this fall foliage sensibility to it. I would just note that if you're making this drink, you should uh, make sure to pick up a bottle of green chartreuse and not yellow. Yellow is sweeter and um, uh, in alcohol. And it's, it's a great liqueur, but it doesn't, it's not used as often in cocktails. Um, and in this drink in particular, if you try and swap in the yellow chartreuse, you're going to end up with something that's just a little bit too much on the sweet side and doesn't have quite enough kick to it. And it also won't have the really striking green color that this drink gets from yeah. the combination of the green chartreuse and the and the lime juice. It really, when you serve them up in a, in a Nick and Nora glass, uh, it's this very visually striking thing that's very deep green. And then you put a, a cherry in it and that's like a red contrast. It's a cool, it, it's a drink that stands out for being cool looking in addition to the to the flavors that it has. And if you want to take that in a different direction, you can make a drink called the Final Ward, which is another four equal parts drink uh, that is based on the last word. It was developed by a somewhat famous bartender who got his, uh, worked at Death & Company for a while and some other bars named Phil Ward. 
W-A-R-D is his last name. And so he made his version, the final ward. And all that does is swap uh, in the gin or mezcal slot, it puts in rye. And then in hmm. the lime juice slot, it puts in lemon. And so you get this great, like, I, to me, that's the sort of late October version of this drink, is the rye and lemon version. And it, it's it's effectively a whiskey sour, if you think about it. Yeah. So in a lot of, right, it's just a whiskey sour where the green chartreuse is substituting for some of the rye, and the maraschino liqueur is substituting for where the sugar would normally be, right? So it's just a much more complicated version of the, the very basic whiskey sour formula, which is two parts whiskey, one part lemon juice, and one part sugar syrup. Well, what if you took the two parts whiskey and divided them in half? Then you'd have a four-part drink, and that's what this does, right? And it's, there's, you know, so all of these drinks are just derived from very simple structures. And, like, there's a lot of, like, very basic kind of math to this sort of thing. But once you understand some of these very basic structures, you you can just work within them kind of endlessly. And I mean, this is you know something I'm always trying to you know impress on people when they make cocktails at home. These things that look incredibly complicated when you see them in a recipe book. Now, maybe it's a bunch of ingredients that you don't have and you're not going to have all of these bottles in your house at one time. But in most cases, these drinks are all derived from just a handful of very basic structures, most of which are three to five ingredients. We should tell people if they're going to be substituting mezcal into these drinks, whether it's a last word or some other kind of sour or whether it's a Negroni, what mezcal specifically do you reach for? Most of the time when you are substituting mezcal for gin, um, gin is an, an unaged spirit for the most part. There are some aged gins, but most, you know, Beefeater, Tanqueray, your sort of classic London dries, they're all unaged. And so you want to use an unaged mezcal. Uh, and very specifically, I'm going to recommend a, a particular bottle, Del Maguey Vita. Yes. Del Maguey Vita is the bottle that if you are drinking a mezcal cocktail in a bar that isn't devoted to mezcal, that isn't like, oh, that's what we do here. 90 plus percent of the time, they are going to be using Del Maguey Vita. It's, yeah, this comes uh, runs... in a tall green bottle. You've you've certainly seen it. Yep behind bars and such. And that company also produces a line of single village mezcals that are much more expensive. Uh, some cocktails do use those much more expensive mezcals. I mean, they, they exist. But virtually all mezcal cocktails, virtually all, the vast majority, let's say the vast majority of mezcal cocktails, no one is thinking, well, what is the exact right affordable bottle of Mezcal? But they're just pulling Del Maguey Vita off the shelf and using that. There are some other brands that I like that are relatively uh, affordable. Um, I like Illegal Mezcal. Uh, I like El Silencio, which you can sometimes find for under $30 a bottle, uh, which is really quite affordable for a, a pretty good Mezcal. The main thing I want to say is don't use a bottle that has a worm in it. <laughs> mezcal still amongst some people. Now, I assume your listeners are, are sophisticated about this sort of thing. Sometimes I, you know, I have people over for drinks and I say, oh, I'm, I'm going to make you a mezcal cocktail. They're like, ew, that like trashy spring break stuff that like I remember from, you know, when I was in college and it has the worm <laughs> and it's like, it's just a stunt that like drunk college. Get. No, 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 those bottles still do exist and they are terrible. But mezcal is actually is a really wonderful and complex spirit with a like a great rich tradition, and there's a huge number of uh, of interesting bottles on on shelves now. If you just want to sip the stuff, and interestingly, just to bring this uh, back around, maybe the single bartender who is most responsible for bringing mezcal to the attention of the cocktail world is Phil Ward, who developed a drink called the Oaxacan Old Fashioned, which is an aged tequila and mezcal old fashioned. 
that he made when he was a bartender at Death and Company. I don't know about twelve or fourteen years ago, something like that. It was the late aughts or early tens, uh, something like that. And that drink, taking aged tequila, which drinks just a little more like a whiskey because it's had some time in a barrel. And some of the smoke from mezcal and combining those with agave syrup. And so this is a syrup that is derived from the same plant that, uh, you know, that the mezcal and tequila come from. Combining those with agave syrup and bitters in an old fashioned like structure, you just end up with this incredible, wonderful drink. Again, it's just an old fashioned though. It's it's just built like every old fashioned you've had, except that with some clever ingredient swaps, totally changes the drink. And this is this is how cocktails get designed is start with these basic structures, an old fashioned, a Manhattan or a martini, a sour, and then just start moving different components into the different slots. Let's talk about whiskey sours, uh, because I, you know, in the summer, I love a sour drink and I make a lot of Mai Tais. For my birthday party this year, we actually did Blue Hawaiians, which are tacky, but fun. Basically a pina colada, but you put uh, blue curacao in it, so it's bright blue. But I, I really associate sour drinks, so drinks with citrus and, and sugar and spirits, I really associate those with summer. It's not something I would drink in January usually. I love a whiskey sour in the fall. In Washington, D.C., fall is not cold. Like, in October, the highs will be 75, right? It's, again, it's, you know, it's, and then it gets a little bit cooler in the evening. And so that to me is a time when you, you can still sort of support a somewhat more, you know, juicier, sweeter drink. At the same time, you want to start moving into the aged spirits family, you know, uh, uh, whiskey in particular. And so a whiskey sour is, it's just, you know, at, at core, it's just, a syrup, lemon juice, and then whiskey, right? And so a very typical ratio would be two parts whiskey, one part lemon juice, and one part simple syrup. Sometimes those ratios get switched up a little bit. But then there's a bunch of different ways that you can vary this and make really interesting and complex drinks. And I think the one that I want to point people to here is the penicillin. Have you ever had a penicillin? Yeah. So it's a whiskey They're sour, really but it's got scotch instead of instead of bourbon or rye as the base and you use a a blended uh, scotch that isn't going to have like a really assertive character would you use like johnny walker red or something or what what would so you I use famous grouse um a lot of folks use monkey shoulder in that slot uh but i i like famous grouse cuz it's like $22 a bottle and it's <laughs> delicious. It's not spectacular, but it's just it really works well in cocktails. It's also actually surprisingly good for sipping. So you 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 take the the famous grouse or, or, you know, a blended scotch, lemon juice, and then the sweetener portion is a honey ginger syrup. Now, you can do this as a, a split syrup where, and this is how I do it, where it's part honey syrup and part ginger syrup. And the ginger syrup is really fun to make because you have to juice ginger roots and you're actually taking the juice directly from huh. a ginger root and then building a syrup out of that. But if you just want to make a honey water syrup with some ginger infused into it, that will work very well here. And then the really... The, like the most interesting thing about this drink is you have to you top it with a a a much peatier, much more assertive, much more smoky scotch, typically Lafroig, sometimes Ardbeg. And the way you top it is you put your your very assertive scotch, your Lafroig, in a mister, and you just hmm. mist the top of this thing. So when it comes up to your <laughs> nose, you're smelling like oh my gosh, this is the most peaty, right? Like this is you know like a. a kind of a campfire, you know, extinguishing sort of scotch, like I'm not sure I'm going to be. But then when you drink it, it's got this very mellow, very smooth sort of character to it. It's just that it has sort of like announced itself a little bit more, you know, in the glass with this mist of 
uh, of smoky scotch on top. And so it's a really fun drink to make technique-wise. It is a little bit complicated. I mean, it, it involves a piece of equipment that most people probably don't have on their bar, but it's one that's cheap and easy to use, right? I mean, this is like we talked about back in the spring, that people should have an eyedropper bottle full of saline solution. People can be like, oh, you want me to get a new thing and I have to make a new thing, but saline solution, all you have to do is dissolve salt and water and a dropper bottle you can get for a couple of bucks on, on Amazon. It's all, it's- They're, they're like $2.50 and- they will deliver one to your house tomorrow. Similarly, a, a mister, I assume, is about the same price as that, right? It's just like, it's just a little bottle that you have to put a little scotch in and you can spray it on. It's really easy. Yep. And if you're filling that bottle with scotch, mostly to make penicillins, it will last you a year. The most complex part of that is if you want to make ginger syrup and juicing the ginger does take some effort because basically what you do is you put ginger roots into a blender, blend it into a paste, and then you have to mash that the ginger roots through a, a, a chinois, which is one of these, a, a, like a big fine mesh conical strainer with a sort of mortal pestle situation where you're like pushing that stuff through and getting the juice out. It's a pain and it takes... It's going to take you 20 minutes or so. Then you take that juice and add sugar to it. And so, like, it's a multi-step process. And I will say, like, going through all of that, that's not something you're going to do Tuesday after work when you're really tired. Uh, It's fun, though. And ginger syrup, if you make it right with, like, from the actual ginger juice is just incredible. And there's other things you can do with it as well. It's not just for penicillin. So I was going to say, that sounds like a real pain. And and I wanted to ask you sort of more broadly about your approach to syrups, because you're, you're writing about how you, you've moved away from making syrups on the stovetop. And I think this is the way people normally think about how you make a syrup. You you boil water and, and sugar together. And then if you're adding flavorings, you sort of, you can steep it like a tea. You put mint in and you let it sit for 30 minutes. Then you take the mint out and you have mint flavored syrup. That doesn't work for every kind of ingredient. I mean, mint works really easily because it's leaves. It's literally very similar to tea. And so you were saying that increasingly when you make syrups, you use your blender. And in some cases, you even use an immersion circulator, which is like how how people do sous vide cooking. This seems like significantly more complicated than working on a stovetop. So when, when do you, am I wrong about that? So let's talk about the two main ways that I make syrup. The first one is in a blender and only in a blender. And I think that this is much easier and much simpler than making stovetop syrups. I also think the syrups come out better and more consistent. Your very basic syrup, a a one-to-one simple syrup or a rich simple syrup, which is two parts sugar to one part water, you can make that on the stovetop. You combine two parts sugar and one part water on the in a pan and just sort of stir it for a while until it's pretty integrated and you let it sit. And it's how long is that going to take you? It's going to take you 20 or 30 minutes until you have this, like, you know, you're not going to have to stir it the whole time, but while it simmers and sort of while it gets together, then you're going to have to let it sit and cool for a while because it's warm at this point. And that's going to take, I mean, even if you put it in the refrigerator or even or in the freezer, it's going to take at least 45 minutes for it to cool down and sometimes much longer than that. So if you want that syrup to be ready, you're going to have to think about it over an hour before you make the drink. And with a blender, all you do is you put those things in the blender and you blend on high for two minutes. And then the syrup is ready. It's ready right then. The other thing is, in a blender with no heat, you you have no danger of boiling or release or changing the amount of water that you have hmm. there. So you get a much more consistent syrup. So if you okay. if you are making syrup on the stovetop, you kind of have to watch it to make sure that it doesn't boil and you don't you know change the ratio of water to sugar. And inevitably, if you're heating it enough to get it to integrate, you're going to get a little bit of like the volume and ratios are going to change just a little. 
and they're going to be different every single time that you make it. Now, every time you make your syrup, your syrup is coming out a little bit different. Make it in the blender. It's faster, it's easier, and it's more consistent. And that's true for any syrup that is just sugar and water. You can also make a honey syrup like that in the blender. With honey syrup, I don't even use a blender. I use a whisk. I take three parts honey, one part water, and whisk it together in a bowl for about 45 seconds. And so honey syrup is the easiest syrup to make. The reason we do this, of course, is because we try to integrate honey into a, a cocktail directly. It's just too thick and too heavy. And so you just need to water it down just a little bit. But honey syrup is so easy to make and people need to like, especially in the fall when sort of like honey whiskey drinks just are, are great. This is something that like I, th I think people making drinks at home who don't want to put a huge amount of effort into it, but want novel flavors, bring honey into your cocktails and do it through honey syrup. And that brings me back to the penicillin, yes. which uses honey along with ginger. But the simple version of this is called a gold rush. And it's just bourbon, lemon juice, and honey syrup. And it's so good. It's dumb good. It's like, oh my gosh, how like I've had how many whiskey sours in my life, but I've never had one with honey. And it's so much better. I I basically do not make conventional whiskey sours ever anymore, because if I'm going to make just a very simple three part whiskey sour, I'm going to make it with honey syrup and it's going to be a gold rush. That syrup is easier to make and the flavor is actually is better and richer. You can serve them up, but I like them served on the rock. But again, this is a three part drink that does take a, just that tiny amount of prep to make the honey syrup and juice the lemon. If you have the ingredients, but you haven't made juice or, or syrup yet in your house, you can have a drink done in 10 minutes, you know, maybe less from the time you start. This is partly because I'm from New England and partly because I'm a little bit lazy. I'm partial to maple syrup for whiskey yeah. sours. Maple syrup is the easiest syrup because you just take it out of your refrigerator and it comes in a bottle like that. And maple syrup also makes a great fall old fashioned. Yes. Just use it in the spot that where you would use simple syrup or rich simple syrup or Demerara syrup, whatever it is. If you're making that, you know, an old fashioned is two ounces of, of whiskey, syrup and bitters. Use maple syrup in there. It's so good at this time of year. That's the end of this week's free episode of the Very Serious Newsletter. We're, we're doing something new this week. There's another 20 minutes or so of this episode that's only for paying subscribers. And so first of all, if you are already a paying subscriber to the Very Serious Newsletter, first of all, thank you. And that episode is available to you. Uh, in order to get it, there's this simple process. You'll only have to go through it once. And then anytime we put out a premium episode, it'll automatically show up to your podcast player. All you have to do is go to joshbarrow.com slash account on the device where you listen to podcasts. There'll be an option there, a link that says click here to set up your private podcast feed. Click on that link. You'll go through a couple of prompts and it'll just set it up for you. And then the, the, the episode will be right there. It works with every major podcast player except for Spotify. So you can go there to listen to the episode. You can also listen to it through the web if you prefer or through the Substack app. And if you're logged in, you'll the full episode will be available for you right there. Uh, if you are not a paying subscriber to the Very Serious Newsletter and you want to hear the rest of, of our conversation in which we talked about that pumpkin spice old-fashioned and the uh, advanced syrup-making techniques that Peter uses with his sous vide in order to make that pumpkin spice syrup. We also talk about some alternative uses for pumpkin spice syrup, how you can make really great coffee cocktails with it. We talk more broadly about hot cocktails, how to make hot mulled wine and, and how to serve it in a, in a manner at a, at a Christmas party such that you're not spending a lot of time I'm dealing with cocktails is just like a cauldron of this multi
mulled wine that, that people can ladle for themselves. And we also talk about how I make myself the most popular person at a bonfire or other outdoor event in the winter. If this was especially an issue during COVID, people freezing outside. I have a, a method for transporting hot cocktails there and surprising people with an Irish coffee when they exactly when they want one. And then finally, uh, Peter introduces me to a concept I hadn't heard of called a scotha, which is uh, cocktails you serve at room temperature. That's a, another thing that's that's very easy if you're out in the park or, or somewhere far away from your bar. It had never occurred to me to make mixed drinks uh, at room temperature, but he talks about principles where you can make something that doesn't have any ice, that isn't hot or cold, and that has a, a really nice flavor profile that works with that. So if you want to listen to that whole episode, you can go to joshbarrow.com and become a paying subscriber. That's $6 a month or $60 a year. There's also a half-off deal if you're already a subscriber to the Serious Trouble podcast. You can email mayo at joshbarrow.com. We'll get you set up with that. Uh, and then again, you, you go to joshbarrow.com slash account. Once you are signed up and you click on that thing to set up the private podcast feed, and then this full episode and any future premium episodes will show up directly in your podcast player. So again, I, I encourage you to do that. And thank you so much for listening to this episode.